0: Hello, and welcome to SHIC Talk. Talk is a podcast brought to you by the Swine Health Information Center, and we're very happy to have you join us for today's episode so that we can share information we have been gathering from experts throughout the swine industry. SHIC was started in 2015 and is made possible through National Pork Checkoff Funding. Today, we're going to be talking about an outbreak of the Japanese encephalitis virus in Australia. Joining us today with our executive director, Dr. Paul Sundberg, is also Dr. Lee Constead from the USDA's Agricultural Research Services and Dr. Natalia Ternikeyero from Kansas State University College of Veterinary Medicine. Both of these folks have a great deal of resource and information for us about the Japanese encephalitis outbreak that's happening in Australia, and we're happy to have them share their expertise with us today. Let's just start in by talking just real quick about a quick overview of what JEV, Japanese encephalitis virus, is and why is it being tracked?
1: Sure. I think I can answer that. This is Lee. Lee. In 19, or 1871, JE was first recognized in humans and horses in Japan, and it was characterized by flu-like symptoms and severe neurological signs. JEV, or Japanese encephalitis virus, is among the most important causes of encephalitis worldwide, and there are approximately 68,000 human cases reported every year. In endemic areas in Southeast Asia and epidemic areas in the Western Pacific, The human populations most impacted by JE are children between the ages 3 and 14, travelers to the area, as well as the immunocompromised and elderly. Less than 1% of human infections develop clinical diseases, but this is a severe disease because 20 to 30% of those cases are fatal, and 30 to 50% of the survivors have irreversible neurologic damage. So this is a really serious disease. And what makes Japanese encephalitis complicated is that it's a mosquito transmitted disease. This means it's competent mosquitoes, so mosquitoes able to acquire the virus and transmit it, must bite an infected animal, such as a bird, and they can acquire the viral infection. But not all species of mosquitoes are competent to do this, and not all individuals within a species will actually acquire the virus and be able to transmit it. So once that competent mosquito has bit a bird, then it can feed on another bird and transmit the virus. And this completes the cycle, right? So this completes the transmission cycle. And this would really be the end of the cycle, right? This would be a bird problem if it just if mosquitoes just fed on birds, but they don't. We know that they'll feed on mammals as well, right? We've all experienced mosquito bites in the past. So we know that mosquitoes will also feed on birds and mammals. And so the real problem with JED is when they feed on pigs. pigs can get infected from the mosquito bite and they become highly viremic, which means more mosquitoes can feed on the pig simply because of the increased surface area from a bird, right? And the high viremia in the pig means that a greater proportion of the feeding mosquitoes will become infected when feeding. So that's why pigs are considered amplifying hosts for the virus, whereas birds are considered the reservoir hosts, right? So the reservoir hosts just have mild to moderate viremias and they can infect mosquitoes, but not at that proportion. And the other problem with birds is that birds can then move, right? They'll migrate. Uh, this is not really that big of a problem for pigs, but, but birds can migrate long distances, which will spread the virus greater distances. That's basically Japanese encephalitis virus transmission and why it's
2: important to the swine producers in a nutshell. So Lee, you used to talk about competent mosquitoes. Do we have competent mosquitoes here in the U.S.? We do. We
1: have two Japanese encephalitis virus group viruses in circulating in the United States. One is St. Louis encephalitis and the other is West Nile encephalitis. And those two viruses use the same mosquito vectors and similar bird hosts for their transmission cycles. And so it is very likely that Japanese encephalitis, if introduced to the U.S. and established, will use those same mosquitoes and bird hosts.
2: And talk about what's the bird hosts? What kind of birds are we talking about here? So the most significant birds for
1: Japanese encephalitis transmission in the endemic areas are ardea birds. So wading birds or water birds associated, right? And so we have those in the United States as well. So herons, egrets, those sorts of birds.
2: What do we know about other birds? Robins, sparrows, West Nile virus got into the U.S., in New York and quickly spread. And if I remember correctly, robins and sparrows, other birds were involved in that. Could they be involved in JEV also?
1: Robins did play a very critical role in West Nile transmission, uh, but I'm not entirely sure their role would in JEV. I'm not sure that's been established.
2: Then what happened in Australia? Why the JEV, JEV outbreak in Australia? What went on that caused that?
3: Uh, I'll address that, Paul. I will say, uh, I would recommend the audience uh, to listen to the CHIC webinar that was offered on March 29th, uh, where doctors Christy Richards and Bernie Gleason tried the main clinical manifestations that are observing in um, as well as the interventions that they're currently putting in place to manage the outbreak in Australia. Um, If you allow me, before I think discussing what is happening right now in Australia, I think it's important to provide a little bit of background about JV in Australia. When you look at the literature, Australia has has had almost a 30 year long history of JV since its first first detection in 1995. And at the time when it emerged, when it it did emerge in Northern Australia, outbreaks were limited to the Torres Strait Islands. The first emergence was associated with genotype two of the virus of Japanese encephalitis virus, which was followed by then the emergence of another genotype, genotype one in the year 2000. And basically from 1995 to 2004, JV virus uh, was considered to be reintroduced annually via tropical cyclones or from weather patterns such as El Niño that were then responsible for transporting um, infected mosquitoes from Papua New Guinea, where JE is endemic, uh, to the Torres Strait and then deep into the um, Cape York Peninsula. Then the last evidence of virus in the mainland was in 2004, and it was likely associated with the mass vaccination com- campaign that they put forward, to the point that big sentinel and also wild birth surveillance that they were having in place were discontinued in 2005 and 2011. But then they quickly redeployed mosquito-based surveillance. So now, fast forward to the present day uh, before the current outbreak. There was a human case that was reported in late 2021, which was followed in by the ongoing outbreak that they're experiencing on the eastern and the southeastern states of Australia, which are considered naive regions to the virus. And specifically in February this year, they saw in Australia the emergence of a new, a yet new genotype, genotype four in Australia, which was new which was identified in New South Wales, Victoria, Queensland, and also South Australia. And as described by our colleagues, in uh, veterinary colleagues in Australia, at the end of March 2022, more than 50 pig farms um, on the eastern seaboard of Australia and in South Australia were affected with JVs. Uh, So that is what they started seeing in late February 2022. Regarding as to potential reasons for what caused the current outbreak in Australia, and specifically why JV was reintroduced and spread onto other regions, it may be related to the fact that in the past two years, Australia experienced this record-breaking rainfall and flooding that was associated with La Nina weather patterns. They theorize that these conditions providing basically an ideal breeding ground for Culex mosquitoes, the, the main vectors for JD, as well as for habitats that are shared between water birds and mosquitoes. It's possible that either the virus that was already circulating in the north in lo- local mosquitoes population, or that there was a windborne introduction of infected mosquitoes in the north. Mainly from Malaysia, probably, or Indonesia, where genotype four is endemic. And then also with migratory birds, infected birds that were pushed south, allowed them the further dissemination of the virus in areas where before the conditions were not optimal for the virus establishment. Because the virus was introduced and established in these new areas with this large immunologically naive domestic pig in human populations, they are seeing this widespread clinical illness in pigs and also in humans. So those are some of the theories being discussed as to the potential reasons of the current outbreak in Australia.
2: Yeah, the current outbreak in Australia is pretty remarkable. It showed up, as you said, within a period of months in four different states in southern Australia, and affected the pig populations down there. What's the range, though, for mosquitoes? What would you expect from mosquitoes? They they can't fly that far. They'd have to be blown that far, or or was this more likely movement of reservoir birds because um, those birds were following the waterways and the and all of the rain and the pathways into southern Australia?
3: Yes, you are right. It could be either either long dispersal or of mosquitoes, infected mosquitoes. Um, it can be, they have act- actively or passively fly. They choose to not actively fly very long distances. Um, there are some reports of mosquitoes that passively fly, so they can passively be transported via wind over distances that are greater than, than 300 kilometers. Um, so that is possible. And in fact, that is one of the main theories uh, for the first emergence of Japanese encephalitis virus in Australia, in the Torres Islands being, being windblown from Papua New Guinea. So that is likely. Um, and also the other potential ways to, for these virus to be introduced is through migratory birds that they can fly longer distances. And so that, that's another very likely route.
2: And Lee, you said that, I think you said Japanese encephalitis virus is in the same family as West Nile virus. They're both flaviviruses. And West Nile virus quickly became endemic in the U.S., relatively quickly, I guess. You can talk about how long that took, but I think it was relatively quickly endemic in the U.S. once it was introduced. If we get Japanese encephalitis virus into the U.S., what lessons from the West Nile virus spread spread should we be learning now? And is there a way that we can prevent the dissemination and making Japanese encephalitis virus endemic like West Nile? Yeah,
1: that's a really complicated question. And we we don't really know 100% what will happen if Japanese encephalitis virus is introduced to the United States and how its establishment will look. And I'll just give you an example because we mentioned West Nile virus, right? So West Nile was introduced to the U.S. 23 years ago. It, I'm going to describe two scenarios that have happened with that since that introduction. The worst case scenario is the JEV, so Japanese encephalitis virus. It becomes a significant and persistent problem like West Nile virus. West Nile virus, since its introduction in 1999, has resulted in over 48,000 reported human cases, 24,000 reported neuroinvasive cases, and 2,300 deaths. And likely that's an underestimation. There have been 7 million human infections in the continental United States. And there are 28,000 reported equine cases and mortality in over 300 bird species and significant declines in at least 23 bird species, including a 48% decline in American crows. So that's the worst case scenario, right? That's what happened with West Nile virus introduction. And so that's probably a close worst case scenario for JEV. On the other hand, remember how Dr. Chinichiaro talked about how birds bring the virus long distances. Well, the bird migratory routes, since West Nile was established in New York in 1999, rapidly spread the virus throughout the United States at approximately a rate of 1,000 kilometers per year. It spread. So within three years, the entire United States was impacted. And and we just talked about how significant that was. However, keep in mind birds migrate north south as well as east west. And so West Nile virus was also spread to South America. But, and here's the best case scenario for us in case of Japanese encephalitis there are no significant outbreaks of West Nile virus in Latin America. There are minimal human and equine cases. And it's not like the birds aren't infected down there. There is West Nile transmission in birds. There just aren't human cases. And that's likely because of other circulating flaviviruses that may offer cross-protection, right? So we talked about St. Louis encephalitis. Well, St. Louis encephalitis prior to West Nile virus was the most prominent encephalitis virus in the Americas. And so it's possible that there are variations of that, viral variants. In South America, it could be other flaviviruses, such as yellow fever or dengue virus, that are offering cross-protection and preventing these large outbreaks like we see in North America.
2: So are pigs an amplifying host for West Nile virus, like you said they are for JEV?
1: No, that's a significant difference between West Nile virus and Japanese encephalitis virus. So with Japanese encephalitis virus, our big fear is how the amplifying host pigs, which can be both feral and domestic pigs, will really increase the number of infected mosquitoes in an area, and and that can lead to higher cases in an area. That is not the case with West Nile virus. West Nile virus really is a bird mosquito virus, and the dead-end hosts, humans and horses, they're considered dead-end hosts not because it causes mortality in them, but because they don't produce a high enough viremia to, to have mosquitoes that feed on them. Become infected. Remember, we're talking about a very small amount of blood that's taken by a mosquito when it bites, and that small amount of blood has to have enough virus in it, right? So that the amplifying hosts have to have a high amount of virus to infect the mosquito, and then that mosquito has to go feed on another one, and that just isn't the case with pigs in West Nile, but it is the case with Japanese encephalitis.
2: Okay, Natalia, I think you were involved and very important in doing a risk assessment for the opportunity for JEV to get into the U.S. and establish. And I believe, if I remember correctly, during the webinar, you said that the risk, the qualitative risk of introduction of mosquitoes that could be carrying Japanese encephalitis virus was high, that that risk is high. But as you go along through the risk assessment process and the risk assessment steps, you come out with a different answer on the, uh, on the back end. Can you describe the risk assessment steps that there are and what you and your folks found about the risk of introduction of JEV into the US?
3: Yes. So we were posed with the question of what is the risk of introduction of, of Japanese encephalitis into the United States? And then so we put together a team in collaboration with the United States Department of Agriculture. So there are several ways to assess risk, depending on the type of data, uh, the source materials, the data that are available. So in order to answer the question, we we use two approaches. Uh, We we look at it from a qualitative standpoint and a quantitative standpoint. As you referred, uh, we started answering the question by implementing what we consider a qualitative risk assessment framework, where we start by identifying the hazard which in this case is JV as the pathogen. So we define in this framework what is specifically characteristics of the pathogen, the competent hosts that are available in the United States, um, as well as susceptible hosts and so on. And then we define the area at risk as specifically the U.S. continental territory, meaning that we are excluding Hawaii and the U.S. island territories. And we defined risk in terms of time, year, and space. Then we started assessing the risk of the hazard at different steps of the process, studied by the probability of entry. In other words, what is the probability that the pathogen that causes Japanese encephalitis enters the area at risk, so US continental, by any pathway? So then we determined that the main pathways for this virus to enter United States will be the entry through infected vectors, and that could be done via aircraft, cargo ship, tires, or wind, and those can be in the form of eggs, larvae, or adults. We also consider the import of infected viremic animals, the entry of viremic migratory birds, the entry of or the import of infected biological materials, infected animal products, production or importation of contaminated biological materials such as vaccines, as well as the entry of, of infected humans. So those were the main pathways of a potential incursion of JV into the US. Then we assess the probability of transmission, which is the probability that the pathogen is able to spread to susceptible hosts meaning that at least you have to have a competent vector and also environmental conditions that are suitable for virus to replicate and spread. And then we proceeded to evaluate the probability of establishment, which refers to the probability that the pathogen can spread from vector to host and vice versa. Then following the extent of a spread is evaluated, meaning that we want to know whether the pathogen is able to spread in time and space, to then evaluate the likelihood of persistence. So is whether the pathogen will assert itself in the areas at risk and prolong stay. So they will stay for a, a, a prolonged period of time, resulting in this endemicity. And then the last, the very last step of the process is to evaluate the potential impact of the disease. So including economic, social ethical, environmental consequences, among others. So those are the main steps or the main probabilities that are considered in the qualitative risk assessment process. So what what did we find? When evaluating the probability of entry, of all the pathways that were considered of entry, the probability of introduction of Japanese encephalitis through infected adult mosquitoes via aircraft was deemed very high, of very high risk. Then we follow that question. We, we try to dig deeper into that question and based on a quantitative model, we, we then predicted that there's a median probability of 95% that at least one infected adult mosquito will be introduced via aircraft from JV affected countries and specifically from Eastern China in Taiwan to the US to two specific regions, the Mediterranean West Coast or California and the East Coast. Every year during the risk period, which was deemed March to October when the, the activity of vectors is highest. So that's what we considered, that's what our model predicted. The probability of introduction of Japanese encephalitis will be via infected mosquitoes via aircraft.
2: So let me let me interrupt you just for a second yeah. here before you go on to the next steps. Because yes. one of my questions when I heard that on the webinar was about that introduction to the West Coast or the East Coast Mediterranean, the South. There are planes that are flying from Australia or from the Far East into Chicago, into Minneapolis, into Atlanta, Denver, every day all day why not introduction in those areas then as well why what's about the the coasts that are the highest risks
3: so that is a very good point and in fact we considered all the direct all, all flights coming from the at-risk regions so all the jv so we classify the main areas at risk at jv and then how in the main areas and the ports of entries in the united states and yes there are flights coming from all these places um, however, these two areas, based on our model, were considered the ones at risk, and probably the main reasons for that is consideration regarding the climate, the weather characteristics of those regions, and also the, so the climate, the geographical conditions of those regions that make them make them more prone to have competent hosts and vectors,
0: okay. um, and
3: so. So those are the main reasons. And again, this is a characterization of risk. It doesn't mean that the, others, the other areas are not at risk or the risk is negligible. It's that the two areas, these two West and East coasts, were identified as the areas at the highest risk. And also one another point in addition to the geographical aspects and um, climate aspects is also the volume of flights coming to these areas. California, especially, is the one where we have the we show the highest volumes of aircrafts, especially coming from Southeast Asia. So that's where there is a very high influx of flights, international travel from into these areas.
2: Okay, that's a good point. There's higher volume uh, along the West Coast, especially. Can I add something here? Sure, go. <clears throat>
1: This scenario, right, of a flight that comes into the U.S. that has an affected mosquito sounds really difficult, right? I mean, the mosquito has to get onto the plane. It has to survive the flight, which is a relatively low humidity area. I mean, it's a very difficult thing for the mosquito to do. But I want to point out that for the West Nile introduction in 1999, retrospective genetic analysis of that shows that virus is most similar to a goose like the West Nile isolate from a goose in Israel. So there was clearly some sort of flight that went into New York, right? And we know that LaGuardia and JFK airports, like, a are significant airports with lots of flights, have that. So it's possible that either a mosquito or a bird was imported to that area that would have brought that virus. It's not likely to have been migratory birds or something. And so it's interesting to think that this is a possible route and that it did likely happen in the past for the West Nile virus introduction.
2: Yeah, that's the thing that concerns me about um, JEV that we've got a template for that happening with um, West Nile virus, and they're the same family. So I'm concerned about JEV. But, Natalia, what was the outcome? What was the bottom line of your risk assessment? So there's a high risk of it being introduced, but bottom line, what's the risk of it uh, maintaining itself in the U.S.?
3: So, correct. So what we think is that JV is likely introduced every year to the US, mainly via aircraft. However, when evaluating the probability of transmission, which was considered highly variable from low to risk, then when we move on to evaluating the probability of establishment, we deem that to be negligible. And the reasons for that is that we considered that the probable limited availability of hosts near airports and seaports, which again were identified as the most likely areas where vectors can be introduced. So that was limited. Also, there is a very short period of irenia that we see in susceptible hosts. The variability of the contact between hosts and vectors. There may be some potential cross-protection of JV with other circulating flaviviruses, such as what um, Dr. Constant mentioned earlier. And also the fact that JV, the virus, is very level in the environment, it's very fragile. So those factors do not support establishment of Japanese encephalitis. But again, this is under current conditions. So if these conditions change, then the pathways may change. And so that we may see a higher risk or a higher likelihood of not just introduction, but also transmission and establishment followed by a quick spread. But based on our model, again, introduction very likely, transmission variable depending on the season in the US place, the location, but establishment under current conditions is negligible.
2: So that leads to the next question then. Are we watching for it? Surveillance, are we doing in the high-risk areas? If you've identified high-risk areas, are we doing any surveillance for JEV? Are we watching for it? If I remember correctly, West Nile virus got into the US and we didn't know it was here until there was a die-off in a zoo in New York. Isn't that right, Lee? So
1: that's correct. So actually, again, retrospective analysis, first off, to answer your first question, Paul, we are not looking for Japanese encephalitis virus. That is not one of the viruses we're looking for. And in fact, a big fear is that it could be introduced and we could detect it as the wrong virus, right? So it, it may, our tests may cross-react with St. Louis encephalitis and West Nile virus. And in fact, that's what happened when West Nile virus was introduced. So it actually was introduced, again, with retrospective analysis, genetic analysis in 1998, although we didn't see cases until 1999, it was probably introduced in 98. We started seeing cases in birds, humans, and horses in 1999. And that's actually exactly what happened with Australia. So their retrospective analysis looks like there were declines in pork production in some of those areas in Australia. And then they started seeing cases this year. um, And that's when the problem was. So so we are worried about that, that establishment happening. And then exploding and again back to the west nile virus in new york uh the initial cases in 1999 were misidentified as st louis encephalitis only the veterinarians at the zoos were really astute and said you know this doesn't look right this isn't this isn't working out the way it should and so then that greater uh investigation led to to really identifying it as a novel virus to this to this continent
2: those veterinarians from australia that were on the webinar did a really good job of describing clinical signs, which in in that outbreak for sows, it was primarily abortions and stillborns. So it was a reproductive disease. But when you say that the veterinarian said, this doesn't look right, you got to give them credit as well in Australia. They also, I think, said, my impression from the webinar was they said, you know, this just doesn't look right. We better look for something else on what's going on. So it's something that we in the US have to make sure that we're aware of and and raise that flag when there's something maybe reproductive in our sow herds that go, this just doesn't look right.
3: Going back to what our colleagues shared, our Australian colleagues shared, they said that, well, they referred to that early case in of human illness in 2021 and they also mentioned that there were some signs of reproductive illness that was lingering since the end of last year, beginning of this year, that they were dismissed. So, so in, you remember Dr. Gleason shared a graph of mortality, how was speaking at different months, and then was followed by the, the outbreak that they are seeing right now. So there was some signs that were early on that were dismissed. And that's one of the issues, and that's why it then exploded, and there was this extraordinary spread to these naive regions.
2: If we are at high risk for introduction of JEV by a mosquito in an airplane getting into the country, but overall we're at a negligible risk for it being established, and we're not looking for JEV actively in any surveillance program, do you guys recommend for pork producers? What should pork producers be doing right now to affect or prevent JEV from establishing in a herd and being amplified and turning into a problem?
1: That's a that's a great question, Paul. So so pork producers are already improving their biosecurity, right? Because of fear of African swine fever. So they should continue to pay attention to their biosecurity. And one of the basic assumptions for US pork production is that it's indoors, right? So, that, so we have them all in structures, and therefore there's minimal contact with mosquitoes and other blood feeding insects. And each producer should really ask themselves, you know, is this assumption true in my facility? Are my buildings really insect proof? Or are the insects coming in from the outdoors? Our Australian colleagues showed that, you know, they had some pigs within the facility and some outside, and both of them were equally infected with Japanese encephalitis. So the mosquitoes were clearly entering. And we know that the U.S. mosquitoes will enter buildings and feed. So I would think that local producers could really focus on, you know, making sure their facilities are insect proof, um, also discussing possibly with their local mosquito control agencies, what are the contingency plans for spraying uh, for mosquitoes outside of the facilities to reduce populations if there's an outbreak. It would also be really interesting to know, although we just said that St. Louis encephalitis and West Nile virus don't really affect pigs, it would be interesting to look to see if there was transmission of these viruses outside the facilities suggesting an elevated risk right if you're getting lots of cases of in birds or in horses or humans around your facility you might consider yourself at a slightly higher risk for japanese encephalitis virus if it were if it were to come in because you have the vectors there you know you have the vectors and reservoir birds and then lastly producers should always consider wet areas, which could be larval mosquito habitats around their facilities. It's always good to make sure you're not producing more mosquitoes, not just for your facility, but for the surrounding community as well.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good point, Lee. Our barns are generally not going to be mosquito-proof. And so if the objective is to prevent mosquitoes from contacting the pigs, then you want to prevent the mosquitoes from being there to begin with and making sure that there isn't uh, standing water, there's not trash or tires or something where water can stand, mosquitoes can lay eggs, breed and lay eggs, hatch and proliferate in the area, that's probably a very good start. It's a good biosecurity practice to begin with, but certainly it's a very good start, especially when you have the opportunity for waterfowl and other birds In spots where there can be uh, outside manure facilities and storage and those types of things happening, so uh, I think that's probably a real good start. Something that we've got to talk to producers about.
1: That is definitely a question that we have and and a concern we have. How susceptible is pork production in the United States to insect intrusion, insect transmitted viruses? Because again, the basic assumption was that they're not. We have learned from you, Paul, that that maybe that assumption is flawed
2: so what now? And like any good risk assessment, it all depends on, like you said, the conditions that are in place when the risk assessment is uh, done. And risk assessment should be living documents, should be living models. And maybe we can do a better job of doing some work on a risk assessment that updates the information. And that would be a good start to where we need to go as a country to make sure that we do everything we can to prevent this introduction to begin with.
1: Another key difference between Japanese encephalitis and West Nile virus, Japanese encephalitis virus vaccines, right? So this is a common problem in Asia, right? So this, this is a significant common problem in Asia. So there are vaccines for horses and people and pigs, whereas when West Nile was introduced, that wasn't a big problem in Europe where it was previously established. And so there were not vaccines. And currently there are not vaccines except for horses, right? And so that is a big difference between them is that we can vaccinate. Although vaccinating pigs is really problematic because of the maternal antibodies, so you can't, when you vaccinate the piglets, that you know the maternal antibodies block the vaccines, and then the high turnover rate in pigs may make vaccination of pigs not a feasible thing. So vaccinating, although there's a vaccine, it's not ex- incredibly effective. But that is a big difference between West Nile virus and Japanese encephalitis.
3: One thing maybe that we we should clarify that although so Aphis, if there was an incursion of JV, Aphis will propose or put forward vaccinating pigs, as you mentioned, Lee, and there are a few. Basically, there is a modified live in an inactivated vaccine that is being used in Asia. We have the, the problem, though, that there are currently no vaccines that are licensed in U.S. So that will be another hurdle that we will have to go through before approving vaccination in peak. That may take some time. There are vaccines available out there.
1: So that may be something that you know, as you talked about what could be done now, that might be something that needs to be added, right? is is trying to get Japanese encephalitis virus vaccines registered in the United States prior to an outbreak?
0: We've been given a lot of really good information, and I'm sitting here as a pork producer thinking, okay, what next? But you gave me some really good uh, good marching orders there and good things to think about as we go forward. At this time, we really, want to thank our guests Uh, very much appreciate your expertise and exposing it to pork producers and veterinarians and and learn more as we go along and we want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your information about jeb dr sunberg do you have any other closing thoughts otherwise we'll invite everyone to listen to the webinar www.swinehealth.org i'll
2: tell you barb um that webinar was i think probably one of the most successful that we've ever had because we had um, so much good information given. This is all about emerging disease potential, all about emerging disease prevention and response. And that's exactly what SHIC is supposed to do. So I'm, I'm excited about the opportunity to tell people about it and to make sure that they have a chance to go to that website and listen to that whole webinar. It's very interesting. And thanks to both of you for your contribution during the webinar as well as podcast now. Really good conversation and I think a lot of good information. Thanks for your help.
3: Thank you both very much for the invitation and for the opportunity.
1: Yes, thank you Barb and, and Paul for inviting us.
0: Thank you for listening to Shick Talk from the Swine Health Information Center learn more about our organization and our mission to protect the health of the U.S. swine herd at www.swinehealth.org.